Hello, I'm Frankie Wolf, and this is Kick-Ass Kentucky Women Writers, where we chat each month with some of the most amazing women writing all across Kentucky. Today, we're talking to Misty Marie Ray Skaggs, Appalachian poet, short story writer, blogger, photographer, visual artist, activist, editor, and all-around badass. Misty's work has been published in a wide range of journals, including Limestone, Pine Mountain Sand and Gravel, Inscape, Fried Chicken and Coffee, Kudzu, and New Madrid. You can also find her work alongside mine in the anthology Quarried, 30 Years of Pine Mountain Sand and Gravel, published by Dos Madres Press in 2015. Misty's self-published poetry chapbook, Prescription Pains, deals with the opioid epidemic here in Kentucky. Welcome to our show, Misty. Thank you, Frankie. You're so sweet, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's start off with a reading. It's spring in Appalachia, so how about something seasonal? All right, I have a poem here, and I wrote it a couple years ago. It's one of my favorite spring poems and, and one of my favorite spring phenomenon out here in the woods. Um, there are peach trees blossoming, floaty sprigs of pink obscured by the still bare trees in a thick clump of woods where an old homestead used to be. The blossoms are soft, a fuzzy reminder of future dreams fallen on hard times. Finally big enough to bear, the trees have been forgotten to sprout forth fat fruit, fallen to the forest floor, a feast for the squirrels and the coons and the possums. Low-hanging branches are plucked clean by deer instead of great-great-great-grandchildren. No peach preserves, no jelly-sweet smell in the air, in a cozy country kitchen. No kitchen, but there are still peach trees blossoming. Mm. I love that. Thank you. Anytime people talk about Appalachian poetry, this whole idea of place comes up. So how does this place influence your writing? Um, this place is my writing. I mean, and that's the truth. I, I write what I know and what I have always known is Elliott County, Kentucky. It's, it's something that I tried to escape and came right back to. And I live on land that has been in my family for generations. My great-grandparents worked hard and bought this farm, and there are pieces of it that my grandfather left to me. And to me, that acre of ground that we drove past on the way out here, that acre of ground to me is like my dream of the future. That's where I want to be, and it's also my past. It's, it's all one thing to me. And this poem, I think, to me says a lot about leaving, you know, leaving home. And there are so many of these little places where you know some little lady planted that tree and she planned for the future with that tree and nobody's here to care. And it's the same with like you drive past these bottoms and haulers and there are what we call, uh, my grandma always called bread and butter, but they're daffodils, you know, and they, and they spring up around Easter and you're like, there was a house between those two clumps of flowers and it's just disappeared. It's fallen out of existence. And it breaks my heart a little bit for people who worked so hard to establish something that is not being appreciated anymore and will in a lot of cases never be appreciated again. The way of life that I was raised in is dying and it's something that I hold on to tight because I don't want to let it go. I want to fight for every last scrap and keep what I can alive and to me that that means this place, that means this land and I think I think even when us Appalachians manage to leave, there's always that string somewhere. Even if you hated it here and you moved away, people want to know the gossip. People want to know how the trees are looking right now. And they want pictures of the fall and they want pictures when the spring breaks out. It's hard to escape. You can't mm -hmm. get away from being an Appalachian. You just can't. Yeah. 
think it was it um, Henry Clay who said he never met a Kentuckian who wasn't on his way home. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's the truth. I mean, no matter where you are. There's a line in a poem that I wrote that people have really, like, taken off with. And I said, there are only two cardinal directions, away from Kentucky and back to Kentucky. <laughs> uh, and for me, that's how it's been. It's like, when I'm going away, I'm already thinking about how I can turn around and get home. What road do I have to take to get back, you know? And a lot of people don't understand that. And it's a difficult thing to wrap your head around. And I understand that their perspective, too, because there aren't a lot of opportunities. But the ones that are here are, are worthwhile and worth the investment. And being with the land and working the land and living on the land is one of those wonderful opportunities that if you're mm -hmm. willing to put some effort into it, it's, it's worth it. I'm not a native Kentuckian, but mm -hmm. I've been here 14 years, and I lived in Kentucky a little bit when I was a kid. We moved to Ashland, mm -hmm. and every time I leave, it doesn't matter how fabulous the place is that I just have gone to, but I'm ready to go home. Yeah, and I think that's something that people don't realize, too. Like, I know a lot of transplants who fully consider themselves Appalachians, and they may have been born and raised on the other side of the country, but when you find home, you feel it, and that, and that may be a cliche thing to say, but... I feel this place inside me, in my body and brain, in my soul, whatever energy you want to call it. Mm -hmm. This place is tied to it, and it keeps me going. It keeps me motivated, and I love it here, even though it can be a difficult place to love from time to time. But, you know, <laughs> it's worth it to me. I keep saying that, but it is. Yeah. <laughs> You're known primarily as a poet, mm -hmm. but you also write a fair amount of short fiction. I do, yeah. So what I've noticed in your work is that you sketch out your characters in a way that's just brutally honest <laughs> and it, you have this ability to go in and pick out just the right details to show the best and the worst in the people that you're writing about and one of the the examples think about the story that you wrote uh where the it's an old school teacher named beulah and she's narrating the story as she's sitting in a rocking chair on the porch mm -hmm. it's something i can you know totally imagine i've seen a lot of old ladies rocking real hard <laughs> on the porch um but she's she's looking at her neighbor in a very judgmental way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that says a lot about her as much as it does about them. Mm -hmm. um, and just, I'm going to read a little piece of that. Jeannie Joe's voice was a nervous chirp, and her hair was bleached too blonde. Her house was too clean, her kids were too polite, and had too much snot. Those rugrats always yes ma'am to no ma'am to Charlene, but she didn't buy it for a minute. Their noses were always running down their faces. And she knew damn well those smiling, snipping, polite kids were the same little hoodlums who put a dead bird in her mailbox. So how do you go about writing your characters? You know, I think most of my characters are kind of just a huge mishmash of people I've known over the years. Like, my great-grandmother had a cousin whose name was Beulah, and once a week they gossiped. That's what they did, you know. Even back when they were party lines, you pick up... Well, Beulah's on there. She knows everything that's going on. And I just kind of took her for starters. And I, I always have somebody in mind, usually, or a bunch of somebodies, or there's like one line that I overheard somewhere. And the whole character just comes out of that. I, I don't know. It's just, um, for me, the character is the most important part. And I do have a lot of place, and I do have a lot of, you know, descriptive imagery in my work but to me like the story is really about that that person and all the things that rotate around that person and mm -hmm. so I just try to flesh it out and make those people as real and believable as I can I make them people I know or some version of people I know and I, I think that's important too that realism to me because I, I read a lot of people who are not 
100% familiar with Appalachia who are trying so hard to write that granny on the back porch. And that granny on the back porch ain't always a sweet little granny. She may no. smile, you know, but I like to capture what's going on behind that that pretty face, you know, <laughs> like what's what's ticking around underneath of that bun up there on top of her head. <laughs> There's probably not always happy thoughts. <laughs> like, no. And, I like to do that. I like to try to find what's inside and bring it out and, and let that kind of form where the story goes. See, I never met that granny on the back porch I see people write about. Yeah. Right. Know, my granny has. on the back porch had frosted tips and <laughs> she'd whap people with their flip flop. Right. And she was not always a nice lady. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in other people's, it's like, you know, they run the range and you wrote about one, uh, I'm not remembering the name of the story, but. You know, the granny's out hunting and she's yeah. <laughs> early. Early. Yeah, yeah. She's not a nice granny. She's not the quilt making Appalachian granny for sure. She's a, a gruff woman and I know that woman. You yeah. Know, I, I know a lot of people, that's their granny. That's that's most of the women I grew up seeing talk yeah, on the porch. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't fuck with them, you know. <laughs> it's not it's not always this sweet. I mean, my little mamma is adorable, you know. She's in that kitchen, you know, making cornbread and doing all those things. But she also, you know, is a, a person and a woman and it's hard to avoid like there's so many stereotypes written about Appalachia and what I want to do is break out of that and let people know that we're individuals and we're human beings outside mm -hmm. of what your conception is and not everybody's granny's wearing an apron and some people's grannies have frosted tips. Some people's grannies have a big old pink ice ring they'll smack the back of your head with. You know, like, it's not all... And it's and it's hard to strike a balance because then you get, like, the whole poverty porn angle where people are trying to write white trash. And I'm like, you've never heard somebody have an argument over the last pack of cigarettes before. I can tell. <laughs> like, so I just try to get in there. I try to get into in people's heads. And it's something I've always been curious about. I've always been a people watcher. And I'm like... Mm -hmm. It's something, I think that the stories come from the people. They do come from the land, and the land is part of us, but to me, the character and build out is kind of what I do. Yeah. So, so go back to Erlene a little bit, because I was thinking about her, um, and she sort of brings up this whole idea of Appalachian superstition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what kinds of stories or beliefs did you grow up with that have found their way into your writing? Oh. Uh, there are stories and beliefs that have found their way into my life. I mean, flat out. Like, you don't open a pocket knife and then hand it to somebody and they close it and hand it back to you. That's just, like, the worst luck in the world. <laughs> you open a knife, you close the damn knife yourself. You know, I don't know I don't know where that came from. I don't know the origin of that. But my papa would have skinned us if we closed a pocket <laughs> knife. Or, like, I will not cut my fingernails on Sunday. <laughs> my grandma said, it's bad luck all week. I won't do it. <laughs> and, you know, I find that a lot of those things slip into my writing. And... And especially right now, I'm writing a lot of spring stuff because you look out these windows and, you know, you see it start to, like, burst out. And and it makes me think of my grandma, who I was here taking care of at the end of her life. And she planted a garden by the signs. And, you know, that was something I wish I had paid a little more attention to because you can do everything by the signs. That's when you diaper break your baby or you mm -hmm. stop giving your kid a bottle or you give a kid like my cousin Tina called me the other day and she's like my baby's growing a mullet but I'm not giving him a haircut until after the first year it's bad luck <laughs> and you know that's those are things that we've held on to and you know at the same time I'm an educated scientific woman I'm not religious in any way shape or form but I think that spirituality and superstition all kind of mash together for me and like there are tons of families like that I wrote a story once about um 
my great mamma's father was supposedly able to lay hands on people and stop blood and you know there are tons of those stories and those are just things that i grew up with like yeah. you pay attention to your dreams because some things might mean a little more than you thought and look what birds are flying overhead and mm -hmm. it's odd but it works its way into my writing because it works its way into my life and you know sometimes i feel silly but i'm like snap slap those uh you know nail clippers out of your hand because <laughs> you can wait till the morning lord ruin the whole week i've like, never heard of that one <laughs> yeah that's that was one of mammals i don't know where it came from i have no idea but and it's my whole family you know my cousins are like no stop what you're doing don't do yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is funny some of the stuff I grew up with and it's you know you forget these things yeah and then, you know in becoming a more scientific person uh -huh. I found that some of these things some of these remedies that people have yeah. all these other things are actually there's some basis to it absolutely <laughs> yeah like my grand my great mama you know she wasn't a drinker and she didn't like people drinking around her house, but there was a medicinal jar of moonshine above her cabinet, you know, and when she made cough syrup, you might get tipsy, but your cough was certainly going to stop. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and what I like about the story with Erlene, I think I tentatively called it Ivy's grandma and the witch or something, but, um, I think Erlene was such a, an earthbound person. She was a hunter. She was a farmer. She lived off the land. She didn't need electricity. And yet that superstition was inside her too, you know, that, that generational superstition, no matter what type of woman you end up being, there's something there that's planted a seed that you can't, uh, at the end of her life, that's what came back to her was that weird feeling that something's out there that you can't put your finger on. And I think Appalachian culture can kind of be explained in that exact terminology. You can't put your finger right on it. It's, it's an odd, it's an odd place to be a wonderful, magical, weird place to be. And I love it. Thinking about all this uh, stuff around coming and going from Appalachia, you had a piece in the recent issue of Limestone called The Dream Girl and the Ghost of Old Cleo, mm -hmm. and it really calls out hipsters for co-opting things that are rural or Appalachian, and then also the flip side of that, which is, you know, people who are part of the community taking advantage of the money that comes with that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why you wrote about that issue? Well, to me, I think this is something... That's in our future. I mean, it's starting to happen now, but I meet people online, for example, that are like, oh, tell me a little bit about your area. And I'm like, they're like, I'm moving there soon. And I say, do you have people here? Do you have family here? Because I assume that's the only reason you, you know, most people's reason for moving home is being with family or being home home. But people are coming in because if they can find a job, they can find a dirt cheap place to live. And the cost of living is nothing. So these people are coming in blind, you know, and right now they're just starting to pour in but i think there's a gentrification of appalachia that is coming and it's coming hard there are restaurants in brooklyn that are serving appalachian cuisine you know they came to some eastern kentucky town and took down a whole barn took it to brooklyn and put it on a building <laughs> you know and they're serving stuff that to us we look at that menu and say you don't You've never been there before because this is southern food this is not our food and it's not you know yeah. there is a co-opting coming and in one way, it pisses me off, and I want to be like the cantankerous old man who says, get the hell off my property. But in another way, I say, your money's green, and we need it. You know, we need it desperately. And if tourism can offer us some help, you know, I'll put up with 
dudes in ironic suspenders, I guess, you know, <laughs> I guess I can do that. You know, if it helps my community, I'll sure the hell try. But there is this like seed of like, I see you, I see you and I know what you're doing. We're not strangers to exploitation here. We're not strangers to the exploitation of our land. We're not strangers to the exploitation of our culture either. And I think that's going to be something that's coming back. And those of us who live here and have stayed here are going to be fighting or taking advantage of. And that's the, I'm still debating, you know, I'll take their money. <laughs> I will. <laughs> it's hard enough to get by as an artist and to get by as an artist who lives in a poverty stricken region. You got to be creative. Yeah. You do. And, but I think, yeah, it's a growing trend. I see a lot of it, especially online. Everybody loves a possum nowadays. I'm the only person on earth that's still like, get that possum out of my yard. They freak me out. They hiss and they're ugly. <laughs> I know. Okay. Disclaimer. Everyone who's listening to this podcast. Possums don't get rabies very often and they eat ticks and they're lovely, beautiful creatures. But these kids are out here sticking their hands in roadkill, rescuing baby possums. I'm just going to tell you right now, I ain't sticking my hand in a dead bomb. <laughs> they smell pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not doing it. I'm sorry. I admire the possum for its ability <laughs> To withstand a dog attack. Yeah. Right. Because, I man. mean, they're impressive animals. I get it. But they're, it's like a trend now. I'm like, I've never seen so many people with pet possums. <laughs> like, no, thank you. No. We had either. one in the house one time. Yeah. And, you know, I got up to, uh, hey, Frankie, uh, there's a possum in here. Oh, no. And it, if we'd had video, we'd have won on America's Face. <laughs> Y'all bad We are like possum. chasing it with sticks, wearing gardening gloves. I mean, what's a gardening glove going to do against a possum? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just odd. You know, people have latched on to parts of hillbilly culture forever. And, you know, you know a lot of these issues uh, we're talking about relate to identity politics. Mm -hmm. And how much do you think that's playing a role in what we have going on and the Appalachian writing and music and art scene that we have going on today? I think identity politics are a big issue in every scene, in every field right now, especially in the arts field. But the subtitle of my blog is, you're not from around here, are you? And that's because I get asked that question. And I'm like, motherfucker, I was born on Beartown Ridge Road. Who are you talking to? You know, but, and that accent kind of breaks out. And I've noticed since I moved in here and started taking care of the mammals, you know, but for the first all my school years, you know, I was an overachiever. I did speech competitions. I was on the academic team. I competed in foreign language festivals. Everything nerdy you can think of, I did it. And their main point was educate the accent out of you, you know. Mm -hmm. And for so long, we've been forced to abandon our identities, especially those of us who've gone into academic fields or anybody who's moved away from here. Mm -hmm. We've been forced to abandon our identities. And so now I think there's a a really hopeful surge in people taking taking it back, taking back Appalachia. And, like, that's why I'm so happy to be involved with It's Good to Be Young in the Mountains coming up because I think this is the first time anybody's looking at these kids and saying, it is possible for you to stay here and for you to be who you are and do what you want to do. It may not be easy, but it is possible, and you can make that room for yourself. And it's okay to take up space as an Appalachian and... And, and there are a lot of other identities issues playing in right now. I mean, we've got groups like Queer Appalachia and the Round County Rights Coalition and Moorhead Pride. I mean, people are embracing their hillbilly identities and mixing it in with whatever other ways they want to identify themselves. And I think that's beautiful. I mean, if it's genuine, I love it. 
if it's put on, we can tell. We'll spot you. <laughs> you know, we'll spot you a mile away. <laughs> like, and I think, uh, I think it's great to see an upsurgence in being proud of being Appalachian and not feeling like you have to erase yourself. And I, I love it. I love that. Yeah. A lot of these, these, these can get really political and, and touchy with a lot of people, but the whole idea of a touchy subject isn't new for you. Mm-hmm. Um, first time I heard you read was when prescription pains came out uh-huh. and, you know, it gave me goosebumps. Just some of the things that you were talking about because it felt so close to home mm-hmm. in my, you know, Appalachian, Ohio upbringing. I think it was a span of two to three years. My brother and sister and I all saw about 11 of our classmates die either directly from a prescription overdose or because of some violence that happened as a result of of that yeah so when you see articles like the new york times following around the huntington rescue squad Uh there were 23 overdoses in one day it's crazy it is and the thing is because we live in such a small place i'm not saying that the impact isn't felt anywhere that this is happening but because of this the bonds of community that do remain it's it's devastating when you have an entire generation of young people dropping dead and and an entire generation of even younger people being raised by their grandparents who aren't going to live forever and i'm scared for those kids i'm scared for for our people in, in that department and and i mean as far as i can tell those drugs were funneled directly to us i mean and people can call me conspiracy theorist whatever you want half the people i knew were driving to florida and driving straight home the next day and we all knew it was happening and every law enforcement agency around here knew it was happening and all those doctors down in florida who were writing those prescriptions knew it was happening but who cares about a few poor dead people as long as you're poor who cares and that's the truth and it was something that my mom and i did as a collaborative project she did art for the project and and it came about because i was writing about it and she picked up a journal i had left laying somewhere and started reading and she was sketching about it and we had these depressing sketches and poems that just happened to go together and i think it's been impactful i've had a lot of really great feedback for this collection and uh i mean people who come up to me who are not the kind of people who others would assume read poetry but they come to these readings because they want to hear somebody say what they're afraid to say out loud and that's my daughter's killing herself or my husband is in the back bedroom and we don't even have a relationship anymore because he's passed out half the time and i think i've come i had a woman come up to me at a gallery reading in grayson and i read a poem about a child that i knew personally that drowned because both parents were passed out cold and the kid fell into a farm pond and drowned and uh i read that poem and she came up to me and I was selling the chapbooks for 10 bucks, and she said, I, I can't pay for one now, but will you hold me a chapbook till the first of the month? And these are, you know, people that other people would look down upon and say, what are you doing here? You're here for the free food, you know? And I gave that woman a book, and it, she cried, and I cried, and it was it was a wonderful feeling to know that your work is reaching people who others may assume are not worthy of literature. And that's bullshit. I mean, I write real because I want real people to read it. I don't want just the academic community. I don't want just the literary journals. I want anybody who feels pulled to this subject or any subject I'm writing on to pick it up and read it and feel like somebody's telling my story and talking from my point of view and not talking down to me or about me. And I think that's difficult 
territory, but I think this book has touched people more than anything I've ever written. Like, as far as just seeing people react, it, it breaks my heart every time. It, yeah. it really does. And I keep reading it, even though it breaks my heart every time, because it's good to know somebody's out there who's trying to understand, at least, at least making the attempt. So can you read us something? Yeah, from I can. Prescription page? I absolutely can. Um, actually, I, I, we've been talking about the violence, and I kind of changed my mind mid-thing mid here, because right out here in this beautiful, peaceful place where we are, there's double murder like, right down the road. And uh, this is a poem I wrote about, about all that, and it's called The Catfish. A concerned fist connects with the faux pine front door of the fallen down house. He knocks. He knocks. He assaults the thin barrier of wood over and over and over and over again. The insistent pounding pierced Sunday morning silence on Stark Ridge, an ominous way to start the Lord's Day. The man on the steps outside sits. He lights his cigarette with an equally shaky hand. His tired lungs fill with the reassuring burn of nicotine. His mind fills with snapshots of good old boys growing together, of hunting trips and moonshine sipped and secrets revealed on creek banks well after dark. No one but the catfish were listening, twitching their slimy whiskers in the all-knowing mud. Ancient creatures watching from underwater as good old boys become men. There's no answer from inside, no sound escaping the stale darkness beyond the loft door. A layer of filth rubbed from the rickety front porch rail dirties the pure white sleeve of his best church shirt as he leans closer, peering through a pane of glass and hoping for the best. On this, the day of rest, the best would be finding him passed out, prone, drooling, but still breathing, shallow, still living, barely, amongst the heaps of empty cans of natty light and the overflowing ashtrays and the shared and discarded hypodermic needles used to provide the high he thinks he needs, he knows he needs. The man on the outside, the good old boy all grown up and dressed in his Sunday best, should have rode on down the road to the services. He should have fallen into wholesome fellowship wholeheartedly. Instead, he stands witness on tiptoe to murder. Beyond that grimy glass, there's blood. And blood, and blood, and blood, and brains, and bullet holes, and wood paneling. And the man on the inside is dead. The man on the outside, with the good heart and the best of intentions, is forced to go on without his ill-fated friend. To ride on down the road, and try to laugh, and love, and keep on living. Try to forget the image of a head blown to pieces in his head. As he turns away, the white-faced witness thinks the strangest thing. He wonders if the catfish caught the last breath and kept it. Mm. And unfortunately, these scenes of violence are happening more and more. They are. And, and unfortunately, it's typically violence against each other. You know, it's not, it's not the drug dealers coming down from Detroit. It's your neighbor. It's your cousin. It's somebody you've known your whole life who's desperate and addicted or just desperate you know in some cases but i mean it was it was shocking to all of us because these were kids who grew up together these are people that knew each other their whole lives they're probably related through some way or another and 
it shakes an entire community. Even if, you know, you know these are ridge runners, whatever, you know, those are people. And it's hard to ignore the real faces that, that came with this epidemic. And, and the backlash is still here. I mean, it's still fallout all over. You can see it everywhere. So you mentioned that your mom's an artist and she is an amazing artist. She is. She's an amazing woman in general. Yeah. She's great. But I knew you for a while before I found out you were a visual artist mm -hmm. too. So how do the visual arts influence your writing or vice versa? Well, I was really lucky in that I grew up with an artist for my mom and my grandmother's also an artist. So we got into doing art shows and going to festivals and setting up booths early. So the visual arts have always been a part of my life and it was always one of the most happy and it was a privilege for us to get to go do these art shows and for us to see all these interesting people. And when I was 16 years old, I didn't ask for a car. I asked for a trip to a museum, you know, like to me, that was, you know, special to us. And I started painting, really painting as just kind of a, a character exercise for my art. And I, I, I thought I might be an artist when I was young, you know, because I was surrounded by it and I loved it so much, but I was always a writer and, uh, but I love to paint and it's something that, I started doing these little character sketches. I called them paintings with a story because each one became a little individual piece of short fiction. And people loved them. And people started to, I gave them away for a long time. People wanted to buy them. And, and that kind of got me started painting more. And it's an important part of my life. It's something that I really enjoy. And I'm glad that I can, you know, sometimes you need to take a break from writing because it gets so deep inside you. You know what I mean? And, and, painting you can let it out and see it and and with writing I just get so nitpicky like I will go back over the same story 50 times and there's always some line that can change or always some and that's true of painting I'm sure for other people too but for me it's more of an outlet and and I think that's why I enjoy the visual arts so much and I just love to be around artists they're always the best weirdos and <laughs> I always have so much fun with my art friends love a good weirdo yeah they're my favorite kind of people Whatever brand of weird you are, I'm down. I'm down with it. <laughs> I don't discriminate. So for people who haven't seen your art, how would you describe it? I always call it hillbilly pop because it's like, <laughs> it is typically more Appalachian subjects. I do landscapes occasionally or like, you know, trashy looking tattooed girls and, you know, it, but I love bright colors. I always loved pop art and I think color is like my favorite thing to play with and but it's outsider art, you know, I don't have any real technical training or anything. It's just, it's outsider art, but yeah, I like to call it hillbilly pop art. And I think it's kind of what it is. <laughs> I think that's kind of the best label I've come up with yet. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I buy that. I it. When you said it, it was like that. All is, right. Now perfect. everybody else buy some. <laughs> wink, wink. I just heard that you're into editing a journal now. So. I am, yeah. Can you tell me about what you all have going on over at Rebel Lit? Oh, Rebel Lit's going to be amazing. Our our first issue is coming out on May Day, which is perfectly appropriate because we're focused on uh, working class literature. And Anna Yansevich, who is a wonderful short story author, and she works with a great journal that does uh, weird contemporary fairy tales that everybody should check out. I love that. But she approached me about doing a feature on Appalachia and and the Appalachian working class. And, you know, I, my papa, who is the man that I'll probably always measure all other men against, was a union man. And that's what I told Anna. When I was growing up, the good guys were the union men and the bad guys were the scabs. We didn't play cowboys and Indians, you know. My papa bought, lost most of both of his hands in a lumber mill in Mansfield, Ohio. 
and unionized and came home to Kentucky and was a carpenter with no hands. You know, I mean, to me, it was an important voice that needs to be heard. And there is that whole snootiness to the academic scene when it comes to writing. And we're reaching out to people who are maybe not writers by profession. We're reaching out to people who are electricians and construction workers and doesn't mean they're not writers too, but it means they may have a harder time finding a place for their work. And we want it. We want all of it. We want to show the world, you know, the creativity that is happening among the working poor, especially. And we want to showcase diversity in this region and in the whole class that we're coming from. And I think it's going to be a great project. We've got fiction coming up. We're, ta we're still taking creative nonfiction and essay submissions, so we're looking for some of those. Um, I'm going to do a little piece for about It's Good to Be Young in the Mountains. I've got some things lined out for some from some Afro-Latin poets. I'm going to talk to Jude, hopefully, McPherson. Okay. And, I love his yeah, poetry. I love his poetry, too, and he works so damn hard. Like, I, that guy needs, people need to know his story and his work, and I, I think he's a great writer. I think it's going to be a great publication. I'm excited about it. So everybody definitely check out Ravelit and mm -hmm. submit something. We're going to do art as well. We're, we're, oh, something else I'm really excited about is we have an anonymous columnist who's writing about being in prison. So we're going to have a whole feature with every issue of an essay of someone who's actually spent some time in prison, which is another voice that is not heard in American literature nearly often enough. So I'm excited to get some people out there who deserve to be out there and to be read and who may not be in the right place at the right time to get the exposure that they want. So That sounds exciting. Yeah, it's going to be good. See it. It's going to be good. So what else can we expect from you in the next year or so? I've helped out a lot with curating an art exhibit for It's Good to Be Young in the Mountains coming up next weekend. That's going to be a blast. I'm going to be showing art. Me and my whole art family were going down to Georgia for Finster Fest at the end of May. It's at Howard Finster's home, Paradise Gardens, which is amazing. I'm so excited just to get to go there. But I'm just writing. I'm always writing. There's always something something going on with me that I'm writing. I, I can't stop. It's a compulsion, really. But Rebel is keeping me busy. I've been staying busy with It's Good to Be Young in the Mountains and just trying to get a collection out there, and I'd love to find somebody to publish that, some small independent thing to get my short stories out there. I've been working hard on those short stories. We'll see how, how they're received. I hope they are published soon. Thank you, ma'am. Thanks for chatting with me today, Misty. It's been a pleasure. You can check out more of Misty's writing and see some of her artwork on her blog at lipstickhick.tumblr.com. Tune in to Kick-Ass Kentucky Women Writers next month when we'll be chatting with a mystery guest. Who will it be? Tune in to find out. I'm your host, Frankie Wolf. Thanks for listening.